Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome back, one and all, to another edition of More Perfect Union. Today, the topic burning up the internet, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court, the leak, the first historic leak from the court, and clearly the amazing response to this on both sides of the argument. So today we're going to delve into all of the implications of this. Uh, with us today, Dr. Natalie Alinos. Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. Uh, we also have Chris Wolf, and joining us this morning as well, Nick Remesong. Good morning to one and all. And we also have a special guest, Natalia, I turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Pete, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm really pleased that Jesse Marmel has agreed to join us for this important topic. Many of you in Franklin and in Brooklyn, where I am, uh, know Jesse really well. She and I were in the same congressional race in 2020, uh, but Jessie truly is an expert on this topic. She, I'll give you a quick bio. She was the youngest person elected to Brookline Select Board, uh, something that I have learned a lot more. Actually, we had our Brookline Town Elections on Tuesday, and I'm a new town meeting member. I'm excited, but the Select Congratulations, Board Congratulations, and I'm Thanks. sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Um, and then Jessie became Governor Deval Patrick's Communication Director, where she helped the governor do a lot, including spearheading his Strong Women, Strong Families initiative. But the reason she knows so much about Roe versus Wade is that she did work at Planned Parenthood and has always throughout the campaign and since then been really a true advocate for women's rights and I think truly can help us think through um, this issue. So Jesse, thank you so much for making time to join us this morning. Absolutely. Welcome, welcome. Great to see you, Natalia, and to meet everyone. And yes, Natalia, my congratulations and condolences on your election to town meeting. <laughs> the uh obvious historic element of this, of which there are so many, but one of the novel elements, of course, is the leak, the leak, the leak, the, the fact that something from uh, Justice Alito's office made it into the public forum uh, while they are supposedly still in the midst of their considerations, uh, but also the fact that the opinion written as it is is also touted to have already been voted uh, effectively when released and made public officially would be the death knell of Roe v. Wade. Um, and I think, I think, Pete, you know, the story of the leak has taken on this grandiose, but the real problem, the real question is what is in that document? And I think, you know, we need to focus on that, not the fact that it was leaked. I mean, yes, we can, as an afterthought, discuss that, but truly the threat that was revealed is that, you know, what Jesse and what other advocates have been talking about is that Roe versus Wade was on the table. I mean, this is historic. And, 
you know, so can we make sure to focus on that first and then no, maybe I think the implications that's, of the leak? I think that's a great place to start. And in fact, let me underscore exactly what you're saying. In reading the 100 pages of it, it is absolutely clear that that is the intent and that the Supreme Court does not hesitate to undo what had been touted as settled law. So um, it's contentious, you know, to be kind. But yes, it's, you know, going back to Roe v. Wade in the 70s and how things have changed in society, or so the Supreme Court would have you think, um, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm just nonplussed just hearing about it. Yeah. See, feel free to jump in and give us even the beginning of like, you know, how, what, what is in the document in case people haven't read it, as well as the implications primarily at the national level, but also for Massachusetts. You know, I think we, we need to discuss both. Sure. Well, well, I think you're right to start with what's in it and what does it mean. So uh, it is a hundred plus page document. We won't summarize the whole thing. Uh, but the gist is that if this draft, and it's important to emphasize that it is a draft, turns out to be the actual decision, which we're expecting in June, uh, give or take, uh, it will overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is another important Supreme Court case related to abortion um, that, well, I, I think weakened the, the case uh, for, for what states would have to do to protect abortion rights, also upheld the right to abortion. Uh, those would be overturned in no uncertain terms. And you know, I'll tell you that those of us who are, are in this movement, and I've been doing this work for 20 plus years, sometimes as my day job and sometimes just, uh, you know, as an advocate and an activist, uh, have been certain that Roe would be overturned in this case, either effectively or in reality. And I, I was literally with the head of National NARAL last week, and the conversation was, would it be an outright overturn, or would they try to thread the needle a little bit so that they could say, oh, no, 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 abortion is still legal in America. You know, we just instituted whatever the changes would be. And, and we are now clear that what we're facing is an outright overturning of Roe versus Wade, something that we have been told time and time again by Supreme Court justices in their confirmation hearing was settled law. And, and now we see that uh, that is very much not the case. What that means is your access to abortion care in the United States of America becomes an accident of geography. Whether or not you can access the care you need will depend on where you live. And let's be honest about whether or not far-right extremist Republicans control your state legislature. That said, no one will be safe from the impact of this case. Yes, we live in nice bright blue Massachusetts, where we passed the Roe Act, where we passed the Access Bill a few years ago, and we have protections around abortion care. Number one, those protections don't go far enough. And number two, what we're already seeing, even before this leak a few days ago, is that patients from states with the means to travel, where there have already been bans, are getting on planes, are getting in cars, and are coming to states like Massachusetts and New York and California, where there are protections in place, and they're seeking abortion care here. Access to abortion care in Massachusetts has been so-so. We don't have the number of doctors, providers, and appointments that we need, but it's been so much better than many other states. We are about to be flooded by out-of-state patients seeking care here. And so lest anyone go to bed at night thinking that you are safe here in Massachusetts, that unfortunately is far from the truth. 
The next layer of this is that Republicans have been clear, there've been leaked memos, uh, and so this isn't speculation, this is their own writing, that if they gain control of Washington, D.C. in 2024, they are going after a federal abortion ban. So the Roe Act and any protections that we have here would instantly become moot and abortion would be illegal across the country. So uh, not to be Debbie Downer, but this is a, a very, very grim set of circumstances. The consequences, personal, health, economic, you name it, will be massive and no state, no individual will be spared. I find it somewhat, um, what can I call it, hypocritical in the writing currently and in the possible writing to come. That is, in these hundred pages, they talk about the fact that uh, the abortion issue really belongs to the states. And if that holds true, that is that they are just simply saying we're being hands off uh, it, this is a state's issue. It doesn't fall to the Constitution or the federal government to deal with it. That seems to fly in the face of any claim that in 2024, they would then step up and create legislation that would move it back to the federal government and step on states' rights, quite frankly, in the opposite direction. It's well, you use of, the exact uh, right word. Hypocrisy is one of their greatest talents. Yes, I know. It's, it's, it's a skill. And, and so that said, it pains me to think that they could even attempt to do that. But given the general public's fairly short memory, sometimes, you know, what we're talking about in 2022 and what we might be talking about in 2025 is going to fall to the fourth estate to make those connections and try to make sure that people are aware of that. Um, but be that as it may, um, there's also something else that I think is pernicious that people have not discussed. And, and it relates to Texas and some of the recent laws that have been written regarding uh, basically bounties, because it seems to me that if all of this falls to the states, there is going to be obviously uh, interstate traffic, movement of people. And to the extent that Massachusetts may at this point in time be perceived as a haven, I then wonder whether or not some other state will pass legislation with respect to lawsuits across state lines, people who, who come to Massachusetts and obviously should have, by the way, some protections under HIPAA. And you know that gets into the whole privacy argument of the 14th, which is where Roe began to have some attachment. I worry about that interstate legal wrangling that will then take place. And this will all end up back in the courts under some new guise and maybe find its way back to the Supreme Court in another decade. And you are very, very right to be worried about that and so much more. We are already seeing states attempt to pass laws banning interstate travel to seek abortion care. Um, there are conversations happening now among activists about how you might prevent people who are um, you know, seeking to assist those who need abortion care, whether as hosts in a state where there is a haven or simply in aiding in travel. We know that in Texas, you, you mentioned that bounty for your listeners, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyone in Texas who believes that someone has had an abortion uh, after their ban can pick up the phone and report. I could walk past you in the grocery store, Pete, and you could mm. say, that lady looks like someone who just had an illegal abortion, and you can pick up the phone and report me. And you, if I am found guilty of all of that, you get 10,000 bucks in your pocket. It is 
despicable. It is bounty hunting on the heads of people who need abortion care. Just yesterday in Louisiana, mm -hmm. a bill was uh, put out of committee that would literally make abortion murder. So if you have a miscarriage and someone tries to characterize it as abortion, if you have a fatal fetal anomaly, anomaly in your pregnancy, something we would not wish on our worst enemy, mm. and you seek abortion care, you could be charged with murder in Louisiana. I mean, the ramifications of this are absolutely stunning. And I think we're just starting to put all of the pieces together. There will be many, many, many more shoes that drop. And even though Roe has not been officially overturned, far-right extremist Republican-controlled legislatures around the country are emboldened by this leak. They have already been emboldened by the response to the Supreme Court hearing on this case, Mississippi Dobbs, last year and have been taking action. It is only going to get worse after the official ruling comes down. So I, I keep telling everyone, brace yourselves. The worst is yet to come. I also well, let me jump in, if I could, with, a, with an outsider's perspective. Um, sure. And uh, it's 2022, and we are having a genuine conversation about making preparations to set up a new underground railroad, bring yes. people to, uh, from the south to a places of safety where they can make choices about their what to do with their bodies. I mean, from an outsider's point of view, it's insane. Uh, if I was trying to describe this to somebody in Europe, I would call it a power grab by religious extremists. I mean, there's nothing, there's no justice here. And the legality seems so thin. Um, you know, when I think of German you know, eyes, this is none of that. So it's just absolutely astonishing as an outsider. And to Jesse's point about um, people who are being raped and uh, have miscarriages uh, or abortions, uh, being prosecuted for murder. Uh, it may sound um, insane, but it's already been happening in El Salvador for the last about five years or so since the new legislation was passed there. It and happened people, in Texas a few weeks ago. And people okay. are dying in prison in El Salvador as a result, women uh, who are the victims in this tragedy. At the minimum, certainly, it speaks to the notion that should you receive medical care out of state, then you know it begs the question to what extent are you walking around in the remainder of your life under the cloud of a statute of limitations like a criminal knowing that somebody could pop up from behind the bushes and yell j'accuse yeah you know, I, seeking safe medically necessary abortion care i mean it's ridiculous and chris mm -hmm. i'm just going to respectfully push back a little bit on your underground railroad framing there has been very clear um requests from the incredible black and brown leaders in the reproductive justice movement to, to stay away from that framing. Because number one, we're not looking to set something up. There is a very large network of abortion access funds that already exists and has existed for years and is largely led by black and brown women. And we wanna make sure we're respectful of, of that work and that leadership that's been in place for a long time. And obviously the historical reference to the Underground Railroad uh, is a sensitive one, but you are right in that much work and organizing will need to be done on the grassroots level and at the highest levels to make sure that people have access in any way necessary. But I, I just want to push back on that framing a little bit. Oh, no, thank well, you. I wasn't well, aware of that, uh, that nuance. Well, let me also uh, jump in on that too, Jesse, because, uh, you know, I think there's, I think there's room for some clarity around that debate. The sensitivity of using uh, the metaphor of uh, the underground railroad, I think, is is quite just. 
But at the same time, I think it's important for those of us who are historians and those of us who are in the uh, in the community of color to make sure that if there is a need to go there to that place where we are trying to make a historical analogy, uh, that it's important that folks understand where that framing may be coming from. So unfortunately, I'm not going to run away from that, but that's not my first metaphor. So I agree with you. Okay. Uh, but I also think to, first off, let me also be clear, the legislation does, or, or I'm already uh, two steps ahead. <laughs> okay. uh, this draft of an opinion coming out of the court does set up, I think, and I want to make this clear, that this is not just a state's issue, but a legislative issue. They don't eliminate in this particular draft the possibility that this could go back to Congress. But it's not the main argument with regard to why it is that they're overturning uh, Roe, as a matter of fact. What they're saying is, is that the Fed's role here is limited until it becomes clear that the states uh, have been dealing with this as they should at the front. I don't understand that logic, given 50 years of what has been framed as rights under the Constitution. So let me move to my next point, which is that the Constitution was the underpinning here uh, that in 1973, when abortion was established as a right, it was the Constitution taking away the ability of the states to sort of uh, put their fingers into this that led to Roe v. Wade. So uh, I agree with everything said this at, at this point, that this is not just a taking away of the right. It is a reversal to the point where we're going backwards. Um, and even some of Alito's references not only go back to pre Roe, but go back to uh, the 1700s and the 1800s and with, with people who had no consideration that women were basically human beings. Some of the references are from folks who really saw women as chattel. They did not see women as uh, uh, similar to people of color, they did not see women as basically equal human beings in every sense. So, I, you know, I'm as I said last week when we were discussing uh, the context of the right to privacy in the Constitution, which again is being throttled here, at, at, you know, to the point of almost elimination. Now, mm -hmm. I know. Alito's words in his draft keep pointing out, well, this is only for abortion. This is only for abortion. But I don't believe them. I don't believe them. Because if, if it's only for abortion, then why not then uphold the precedent if you're looking at the rule of law? But that's not what they're doing. Uh, and the hypocrisy here, as I said last week, the, my fear is that this goes beyond just abortion. It goes at the real framing of how certain people in our society feel they are above others. And it looks like it's males over females and people of color uh, and poor people are also at the bottom of that rung.
So, uh, Jesse, thank you very much for being with us today. What do you see, uh, what do you see as some of the things that can happen? Uh, not only will this thing be framed in the sense that people will be felonized over it, but it looks to me like in some states, there's the possibility that you could be uh, incarcerated for years, if not in some instances, held up for capital murder. You know, you've you've made some excellent points. So I'm going to try and, and cover a whole bunch of uh, of content there. First, I, I could not agree with you more that this will not be limited to abortion. There is no ambiguity about that, and and I don't mean that as a, a hypothesis. Literally, Justice Alito in the decision points to Obergefell, the decision that uh, granted marriage equality to everyone in the United States. Uh, as something that he felt was equally weak as Roe versus Wade. And we know that that's what they're coming for next. We have Republican United States senators making the case that uh, uh, the issue of interracial marriage should once again be left to the states. Just today, we have the governor of Texas saying that he wants to take a case to the Supreme Court ending the decision that requires states to provide public education to all students. Um, we know that the anti-abortion movement is coming after birth control. Candidates are running on the fact that they want to overturn Griswold versus Connecticut. I mean, this is going to be a laundry list of rights that we have frankly taken for granted and assumed would always be there, even though some of them like marriage equality are newer. Um, this is uh, horrific in the scope of what, what's to come. To your point about what can we do, what can we expect? I don't want to sugarcoat it. <laughs> These are dark days. There are hard times ahead, but that doesn't mean we give up and there are things we can and must do. The Women's Health Protection Act is facing Congress and the United States Senate. It's something Natalia and I both supported in the campaign in 2020. It has passed the House. It has stalled in the Senate. Supposedly, it is being taken up again this weekend. Thankfully, in Massachusetts, our two senators, Senator Markey and Senator Warren, support it. But if anyone listening has family or friends in red states, I would encourage them to get on the phone and call their United States senators and implore them to support the Women's Health Protection Act, which would codify Roe in federal law. I would encourage people to also ask their United States senators to support ending the filibuster, which is part of the obstacle in supporting the Women's Health Protection Act. And I would also support Senator Markey's bill to expand the court to expand and balance the United States Supreme Court. Seats have been stolen by Republicans over these past few years. Uh, we know that there are, there are, are folks sitting there, um, and one of them in particular should have been appointed by Barack Obama. Uh, and that is part of how we got here today. Uh, and Senator Markey is, is one of the folks leading the charge on expanding and balancing the Supreme Court, something I think is absolutely essential if we have any chance of protecting the rights that we've talked about. I would encourage people to get involved at the local level. We've been talking for the past few minutes about how all of this is coming to the states. That means go vote in your municipal elections, in your local elections, in your state elections. We need to make sure that there are leaders in state houses and in town and city halls who are going to defend the right for abortion access. Um, donate, knock on doors, make phone calls. Even if you can only give five bucks and make calls for half an hour, it makes a big difference. And the last thing I would say, two last things. One, there are a lot of people who've been doing this work for a long, long time and who are really smart. 
seek them out and lift up their voices. If you're new to this conversation and this work, we welcome you with open arms. We need all the allies possible, but take some time to read up and get informed on the issue. And then my other ask is share factually accurate information with your friends on social media. You know, disinformation is a scourge on our society right now, not just around the issue of abortion and so many other areas, which we all know. And so be a part of the solution by sharing information that is rooted in fact. Um, and we know that some of the most trusted messengers out there are our friends, are our peers. And so if you're telling the people in your network that this is actually the real story around abortion access, this is what this means, you will have a huge, huge impact in getting people to understand what's going on and take action. So we got a long road ahead, but we are not powerless and we are not giving up. Jesse, I want to jump in also to thank you for being here. And I think it's been really important that we've been framing this conversation about, as you know, as Michael pointed out, really about rights, about people, about being you know inferior, superior, about women's equality. Um, as a public health person, I do want to bring in the health dimension. You know, abortions will happen. They have been happening since antiquity. They will happen. Now, what, what is at stake is whether those will be safe, whether the women will survive them, or whether they will die. And the inequity, I mean, Jesse, you're, you're sort of the, the chance, the geography is a big piece of it. It's also whether you're, you have the means, the, the money to travel. And women who have the money will not die from having an abortion, whatever happens. They will leave the country if they need to. Um, I lived in Lebanon for many years. I worked in the Middle East. Women from wealthy Kuwait and Dubai and places would fly into Lebanon, even though it wasn't legal there. There were providers that we knew to get their abortions. And but it is unfair to say that wealthy, to a large extent, white women will survive this without real damage to themselves, to their friends, to their families. And so it is a racial equity issue as much as a uh, you know, reproductive justice issue. And so there are many, many reasons why women need to get uh, an abortion for health reasons. But even if they don't need to because of health reasons, they should, once they choose to, be able to do it safely, right? So I'm worried also for my peer, you know, healthcare providers, uh, the intimidation, the fact that they may need, they may lose their licenses, they may, uh, you know, not be, go to jail. You know, what does that mean for healthcare providers who have chosen a career to serve, you know, to protect and to serve and to ensure that people's well-being, that their hands are being tied to? I think, you know, so many people are, are, are being harmed here. And really, fundamentally, this is about equality. It's also about health and well-being. And in the midst of a pandemic, you know, where we see how political it has become, another public health crisis or public health issue becoming so political is so, so frustrating, disappointing. And yet, you know, as Jesse said, there is a lot that we can do. Um, so I'm happy that we're having this conversation. No, and Natalia, you're you're so right. I mean, the people who will disproportionately suffer the public health and economic and life-changing impacts of this will be black, brown, and otherwise poor individuals. We know that. Um, you know, there was a study out of Colorado from a few months ago uh, that when abortion bans are implemented, we see a 21% increase in pregnancy-related parental fatality. Right? Pe people die when they are forced to carry pregnancies. Uh, that for health reasons, they should not be. I mean, this is not some hypothetical situation. We've seen it around the world where there are abortion bans. We have seen it here in the United States before Roe uh, uh, in 1973. I, I think 
the public health crisis that we will see and the public health crisis that we will not see because so much of it will be hidden is going to be earth shattering. And, you know, I think about Dr. Ken Edelin, who was a black gynecologist here in Massachusetts, who was convicted of manslaughter in the 70s for performing an abortion and went to jail. I mean, there is so much precedent for this uh, that is history that folks have long forgotten but is very, very real, is literally here in our own backyard, and uh, I fear is about to come back into our, our current day reality. And a piece of hypocrisy that we haven't touched on is that the same people who are sort of saying, you know, let's ensure, you know, we have, we, we forbid women from, you know, having access to abortion care are not supporting women in having, you know, maternal health care and universal child care and supports, you know, children are expensive. I you know, they are difficult. And we have like this hypocrisy of we will do everything to fight for this baby to be born. And then we will do nothing in our country to ensure that this baby has a life that is, you know, what in Europe, as you know, Chris can attest to, you know, universal childcare or maternity leave, uh, you know, or supports for women or, or, you know, people who are lactating to have, you know, flexibility at work. I mean, it is so hypocritical that it ends at, at childbirth. And then we have, I think, and Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong, the largest number of children living in poverty in any wealthy country, any wealthy country. I don't know if it's the largest, but it's certainly up there. And it wouldn't be surprised me if it is the largest. But, you know, Natalia, you're right about everything you said. And I would add on to that. They don't support comprehensive, medically accurate sex education, right? So uh, before and after, there is absolutely no support uh, for people who want to have agency over their own lives, start families if and when they want, and and lead healthy lives where they control their own bodies. Uh, the hypocrisy seems to be truly bottomless. I, I just jump in there. It occurred to me that I would have more control over my body if I was a vegetable in a coma at the end of life. And I've expressed wishes that, you know, I want my body to be treated in a certain way. Um, I have those choices when I have no cognitive ability at all. And yet a, an adult woman, or God forbid, a, an underage woman who gets pregnant has not doesn't have that choice. It's, uh, it's anyone looking at it from an outside point of view can see that that woman is being treated as less than human, because she's not being given the entitled to the, the, the right to have that control over her own body. It's just, it's just, I know, Little personal story. I, it's almost 30 years to the day since I saw my son in an ultrasound scan mm -hmm. for the first time. And I'd never even considered the issues around abortion before that. And I was shocked at just how human he looked and how responsive he was to touch and things like that. And, but there was, so it, it, we had a good conversation about it. But if my wife had said, no, I, I can't carry this uh, child, we would have talked about it, but I would have raised my concerns, but it's absolutely her choice. Like, why could anyone even conceive that you could say no to that and force her to do that? It's just, from an outsider's point of view, just mind boggling. Yeah. And that's, a, that's an excellent uh, uh, perspective, Chris. And let me say, uh, and I'd really like to have Natalia and Jesse, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, sort of give me some analysis of this. It seems that healthcare is something for women that you can have at any point in time until you get pregnant. And then once you're pregnant, you belong to the state, you belong to the government, 
we then get to decide what kind of health care you receive. Um, I look in, in at, at the decision to have or not have an abortion as part of your health care regime. And, and I think one of the things that we have done in this country is to separate abortion from that decision about your overall health care. I recall that uh, as a child, again, another personal example, Chris, as a child, I learned the word, uh, and help me if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, because I still pronounce it as I did as a five-year-old, ectopic. Yep. And... The reason I learned that word is because my mother, who at the time had just turned 21, Mm -hmm. uh, my mother had me when I was 16, um, and one of her best friends, and I remember her name was Rosemary, and my mother was sad and crying, and when I asked her, my my mother told me that uh, Rosemary had an ectopic pregnancy and had died. I had no clue what that was at the time. Later on, I learned what it was. And ever since, I have had this belief that, again, I don't know why it was that she didn't get the services that she need. But I believe, again, here it was hung up on the fact that she had to carry that pregnancy to a term where suddenly it became life-threatening and it was too late because she did not have the health care and the access to health care that she needed. We're going back to those days, aren't we? We are. And I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about Rosemary. That is a, a nightmare of a story and sadly one that is uh, repeated around the country. Um, you know, there's something that we talk about called forced pregnancy. And Unfortunately, it's a large part of the conversation around domestic violence, abusive relationships. Um, You know, of course, not just women get pregnant and not just women need abortions, but one in four women will have an abortion at some point in their lifetime. This is an incredibly common procedure, a safe procedure. But one of the things we saw when I worked at Planned Parenthood would be uh, people seeking abortion care wanting to bring their partner into the procedure room with them. And that was always declined because we wanted to make sure that whatever their choice was to terminate a pregnancy or to keep it was their choice, that they weren't being coerced, that there wasn't violence at home forcing them to make a choice one way or the other. And so it's the same thing with with forced pregnancies. You know, you're talking about it from, unfortunately, a healthcare availability perspective, but I want to bring into the conversation the layer around violence at home, abusive relationships, domestic violence, um, that is very, very real when you come into this conversation uh, and whether or not someone can seek care and how much harder that gets if you now might have to travel across state lines to seek the care that you need. It's one thing to go to Planned Parenthood on ComAv in Boston, hard as that is for plenty of people uh, you know, with access to transportation and time off from work. But if you're having to travel across state lines or God forbid, in a few years to a different country, um, even if you have the means, and we know that'll be a short list of people, but even if you have the means, if you're in an abusive relationship, that becomes impossible too. So, you know, I know I've said it before, but a lot of layers to this onion. I agree. And one other layer that we haven't mentioned is, you know, there's this assumption around who is, who is having abortions. I saw a stat that three out of five 
women who have an abortion have a child at home. So it's not, you know, and they may be making that choice because they may be not able to even provide for the child that they have. And again, the stat of, you know, how high our poverty rates are, like that decision is in part made through a complex lens. You know, it is the choice, obviously, of the woman, but we don't know why they're making that choice. And I think it's really important that it's not about like not liking babies, you know, the vast majority or the majority of women having an abortion already have a baby that they're taking care of. And I think, you know, we make assumptions of it being, you know, a certain type. And I, I think we need to break those assumptions and realize that people who choose to have an abortion have real reasons, whether it is um, health, a real health risk for them or for their child, whether it is an economic reason, whether it is a career reason they want to go to college or, you know, they're just unable at that time to provide the care. Forced pregnancy means that you are also forcing someone to not, you know, to make that choice that obviously is complicated and not, you know, it's not based on one dimension. And so, uh, Michael, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your, you know, your mom losing a friend, but that is what is at stake right now. It is life or death for so many people. And as Jesse said, we're making it harder uh, already. It's such a difficult decision to make. Making it harder is going to really um, have a horrible impact on, on people we love, we care about, our neighbors, our friends, and people across the country. Well, I, for one, you know, still hearken back to the fact that within the language uh, that exists in the leaked uh, papers, Clearly, there are other targets beyond abortion. And as we've discussed earlier in this program, this isn't over with respect to settled law on abortion or settled law on matters beyond that. In other words, there's an awful lot of stuff on the table that we have accepted. And I think that we are entering dangerous waters where it is uh, a case of, of uh the authority and rule of the minority, the tyranny of the minority. Uh, also, with respect to family values in general, we're talking about a group of people who espouse family values but don't want to pick up the carrying costs. It's just not right. Family values, real family values, should have a societal cost to support them in whole. And I think that's absolutely essential. Kind of goes back to an old argument is the constitution a dead document or is it a living document and it seems to be that those who are who are behind this will pick and choose that's the, the cherry picking you referred to they will pick and choose when it's dead they'll pick and choose when it lives it's and dead on the table and they'll whip out the paddles and bring it back to life they, they will resuscitate it whenever it's needed yeah <laughs> Yes, it's opportunistic at the very least, yeah, and it's unfortunate. I would also yeah. point out, too, by the way, earlier on, we were talking about uh, having to travel and people of means and wealth would be able to to continue on you know, with some inconvenience. But at the end of the day, it's just another notch in the larger argument of systemic racism, where what we have is on one extreme, it's an inconvenience, and on the other, it's a matter of life and death, and it's a crime. Think about that between an inconvenience and a crime, depending upon your status. So I don't know uh, if I would ascribe racism to the thinking of the Supreme Court justices. I'm not in their heads. I don't um, think they intended it that way. But no. systemic racism is buried in the background, as we've discussed it in the past. Right. It's sort and of just there. It's a consequence of other decisions 
that don't consider the socioeconomic status of people and, and how that is forced upon yeah. them. And, and Pete, feel free to take out this thought because it is um, somewhat controversial. But if they are systemically racist uh, and the abortion tra traditionally in this country, as I understand it, has been uh, a preferred method of birth control amongst the population of color and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, if you get rid of abortion, you're going to create more people of color. So it's like, I don't understand the racist logic there. I don't know. Just feel free to cut this out because I don't sure how this is going to end up. No, I understand the logic of it. Part of it is that it, it, it forces people who don't have the otherwise means to move freely and independently uh, to, to suffer the consequences uh, disproportionately. It's about a balancing of, of proportionality across all of society. And, and that's where uh, the issue is. Nobody made it that way. There wasn't a deliberate casting of racism across society through some grand plan. It is part of the fabric of who we are as a country and how it is that we manage to mitigate that successfully, be sensitive to it, be aware of it, find a way to to consider it in the passing of laws. And clearly in this case, it is not on the table. It's just a case of, again, tyranny of the minority. And, well, you know, let's, well, let's take a moment. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Dr. Mike, go on. Um, well, <clears throat> I understand the logic of it. And I think your framing of it as systemic racism is more accurate. It doesn't have to be direct. In other words, we're going to discriminate against the poor folks and the people of color when you know that the outcome <clears throat> is that those people who can ill afford to go to those places where there will be safe havens can't do it. Right. And if <clears throat> as a result, and if as a result, the folks who can least afford it are people of color. And you know that that's what's going to happen from a historical uh, sort of extrapolation. Mm -hmm. Then it may not be racist on its face, but you know that the outcome of this is going to provide, again, a similar kind of parallel outcome as it was in the past. I think it's incumbent upon the Supreme Court to make sure that if they're going to make a ruling, especially when they are going to overturn a precedent, that they understand the ramifications, the legal ramifications, as well as the social ramifications of their rulings. Hmm. And therein, I think, lies part of the hypocrisy here. The law is, <clears throat> is inconsistent with equal treatment across the Constitution. And therein is where the systemic racism lies, because you know from your ruling that this will hold many inconsistencies for those segments of the population upon which you're going to apply this ruling. And I think those in the minority are now, as Natalia and Jesse said earlier, are emboldened by this and they will now say well let's go after some of the other pieces that we don't like as the minority let's go after the idea that same-sex marriage is against my particular belief 
let's go at the notion that interracial marriage is against my notion uh, and my belief. Let's go after the idea that I want to be able to take away something that literally stops conception because I believe that it is important that conception always in whatever act that people hold as a man and a woman is a is the end result. And therein lies, I think, some of the hypocrisy of what the, the court, if this particular draft holds, uh, you know, will be applying to this country. Uh, so, uh, again, your thoughts. And then I'd like to move over to something else that we have not talked about, which is this idea of trigger laws, which I think are also unconstitutional. And yet here we sit with as soon as this particular ruling in this draft, if it is applied in terms of the official opinion, there are laws that there are that are going to be triggered. And here's my thought about that. So why not then let's set up some trigger laws so that if Loving v. Virginia is overturned, our miscegenation laws are going to go back on the book. Let's go ahead and pass those laws now so that if Loving v. Virginia is ever is ever overruled, we're going to go back to segregated marriage. It's an interesting one with respect to trigger laws. Some of them can be written to be, um, what can I call it, uh, surreptitious. That is, we they lie in wait. Mm-hmm. Um, now, starting with the notion that, you know, laws not ascribed specifically to the federal government, federal powers, not clearly enumerated, automatically fall to the states. Should, in fact, a federal power be rescinded, the power would automatically revert back to the state. So in such a case, the states have laws on the books that say, should something flow back to us, this is the new condition. That's the nature of a trigger law. It just, it, it sort of does what the obvious is. There are some laws that die a natural death uh, at the state level when the Supreme Court decrees certain circumstances are not constitutional. Uh, the First Amendment case in Ohio was very famous that way. Uh, with respect to uh, Hustler magazine. Um, but, you know, to make them overt is, is in my mind, telling, because it, it now obviates the intent that this is where we want to go. Uh, it, it says, this is our goal. And the fact that the opposite is true, that is, should the law of the land be changed, there are another 13 or 14 states that are prepared to take immediate action going forward. It's kind of the opposite of a trigger law, but there's going to be some action immediately, you know, uh, that is legislation that's pending and waiting for the gavel. Um, so it sort of cuts both ways. It's, it's a very loud dog whistle, one of the loudest ever. Yes. It's saying, it, go ahead, everything starts now. Yeah, exactly. The, the other issue with respect to uh, the Republican Party and its association with uh, evangelicals in these recent decades seems to spawn a lot of uh, dog whistle issues. And I'm not trivializing this one, but it's a case of finding ways to get people angry deliberately and and fomenting discord and anger in general appears to be a way to get out the vote, whether that vote is 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 underscored by reason or not, they don't care. 
They just want people to come and vote against something, if not, in fact, voting for something positive. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I can't remember which Roman senator it was, but it's an ancient technique, uh, di- divide and rule. That's right, exactly. And we are seeing that very much on the rise, unfortunately, in these times. The last few minutes we've got, I don't know if we could talk briefly, perhaps, uh, if that's okay, about um, some of the things that Jesse was just discussing about solutions. And one of the things that I was surprised by this week was for, um, it was reported that Joe Biden President Biden had um, overruled the idea of um, intervening and getting rid of the filibuster, because um, as we know, we have the the Women's Health Protection Act pretty much ready to go. uh, And if the filibuster was removed, we could move ahead with that and protect the right to abortion at at the federal level. And that would overrule the Supreme Court. Um, And yet um, I I don't understand the hesitancy uh, about that. And if someone who's better clued into the politics of it, of um, what they're afraid of in terms of future Republican uh, slim majorities doing uh, legislatively. But um, it seems to me that the filibuster is just a ridiculous anachronism. Uh, it impresses me that way as well. And, and so often it gets framed as the nuclear option in wonk speak. Uh, and I think both parties are afraid to tackle it because of the fact that, quite frankly, both parties want it when mm. they're in power. Um, so um, Biden's not going to take that away from the Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and yet the the opposite is true. Whenever someone sees that it's in our best interest at this moment, <clears throat> the Republicans credit Harry Reid with the with carving out the idea that the judiciary should be separate from the separated from the filibuster rule interesting then the, then the republicans took that one step further and said well not just the lower court but we're also going to do the same thing for the supreme court uh because it suits their overall frame that if we can change the court we can change the rules and i have heard this argument that well if we take it away when the Democrats are in power, then what happens when we're not in power? And if the Republicans take over the Senate, we're going to find out. My fear is, based on their previous behavior, is that the Democrats are going to be surprised and shocked and put in their place because the Republicans, I don't believe, will, uh, you know, will, will hesitate for a moment with every carve out that they want. And this is going to be one of them. If Mm. the Supreme Court validates this draft in some way and overturns Roe, and if the Senate and House are put in the hands of the Republicans, I think what we're going to find will be that the Republicans in the Senate will create a carve-out, and there will be a national abortion prohibition. Uh, Now, one of the beauties of digital recordings is that they can last forever. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll be able to go back and see if I'm a prophet here uh, or if I'm off my rocker. But that's my prognostication at this point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on your digital recordings lasting forever, uh, Dr. Mike, because uh, it leads into what is my final question to ponder, if you will. Now, we both know that Senators Murkowski and Collins 
made it very clear that in their offices, uh, the justices as candidates, the prospective justices of that time, all agreed that Roe was settled law. I mean, they were clear on that, and the senators were emphatic about it. Now, going back to their hearings, their hearings, I believe, obviously, when they're sitting there before Congress, before the Senate, they're under oath, and they're asked the question about settled law. So if you claim that something is settled law under oath, what kind of, at the minimum, violation of conscience does that generate when you then turn around once you are uh, appointed to office? to not consider it to be settled law. In other words, your actions don't line up with what you claimed under oath. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the um, credibility of the Supreme Court is on the line. So if this verdict is um, upheld, as we seem to be expecting, it's going to be very damaging. I don't know. I can't think I can under, overstate it to the credibility of the Supreme Court and the nomination process in particular. The Supreme Court of effectively joins the vagaries, vicissitudes, and arguments of the other two legislative and executive branches in, ter in terms of how we feel about them. They are no longer the august separate body that we hold in high regard. Exactly. It's another political tool. Which is most unfortunate because what people are demonstrating is that the appointment process being made political actually works to the, mm -hmm. to the given party's advantage. And, and it, it unmasks the justices as not only influential, but influenceable human beings with all the frailties that go with. You know, I'm, I'm torn on this one because similarly, there have been changes in the court in the past where we have applauded those changes by justices. Sure. Um, and I guess the one that keeps coming to mind is Plessy versus Ferguson for Plessy 50 all the way. years. Yep, absolutely. Separate but equal was the law of the land. And then in 1954, the court changed its mind. Uh, <clears throat> if we look at the Constitution as a document that evolves, and I hope it is a document that evolves in the minds of the justices. But if we look at it that way, it means then that certain things can influence me, including the rationale of lower courts, the arguments between states, the idea that our citizens can point out a flaw that we didn't know about. And in this instance, the court, I'm sure uh, the justices on the court are trying to point out a flaw that has been pointed out to them mm -hmm. with that comes, I think, their sort of get out of jail free card. Yes, I may have said this was settled law, but something happened on the way to this opinion. And the thing that we don't know, and let me conclude with this, is whether or not Alito's draft will be the final iteration. And this has happened before. If you recall some of the historical writings around Brown versus Board of Education. It did mm -hmm. not start as a unanimous decision on the part of the court, right? but it ended up that way. Uh, so <clears throat> I think what we're looking at here is a great opportunity when somebody pulled back the curtain for a minute so we could see how the sausage was being made. We may not like it, but we're going to have to wait until we see the final product to see what it's wrapped in. And with that, I say, 
I think all of the protests are justified at this point. Our angst and our anger is justified at this pro- at this point. But I think we ought to be prepared, too, that the final iteration may not look like what has been revealed to us at this point. Well said. And with that, we wish we could continue this discussion, quite frankly, <laughs> for another hour. But we've come to the end. And once again, I'm Peter Jay. And for Nick Remesong, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Chris Wolf. For Dr. Natalie Alinos and our guest, Jesse Mermel, I am so thrilled that we were able to come to you and bring something, hopefully some light and maybe a little less heat to this important discussion as we all move toward a more perfect union. If you have an opinion, we'd love to hear it. You can contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. Please consider yourself invited to weigh in. For now, I'm Peter J. This is Franklin Public Radio.